The Murthy Law Firm has been clarifying U.S. immigration laws and procedures for foreign nationals since 1994. Teleconferences and podcasts were added to the resources available online in 2012. We are happy to offer this free service. Please listen to copyright information and restrictions at the end of this recording. Now, we are pleased to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Good afternoon. I'm Sheila Murthy, President and CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon for our discussion about layoffs and the options for you as employees or as employers to consider and understand the broad framework. Joining me for today's panel are two of my esteemed colleagues at the Murthy Law Firm. We have TJ, uh, we call him TJ, but everybody I think calls him TJ. He's been with the firm uh, over a dozen years, 12 or 13 years. Um, brilliant, focuses on H-1B non-immigrant department related issues. And joining us as well is Kevin Andrews, who also has been with the firm, I would say 12, 15 years, has been um, in the non-immigrant department and has spoken several times, both of them have spoken several times in many of the different multi-teleconference series. So uh, let's go over this topic. As we know, this unfortunately is the reality of what we are seeing. A number of large, small, medium tech companies have had layoffs, sometimes multiple rounds of layoffs, leaving thousands of employees and their families without a paycheck, with concerns about their immigration status. And so uh, what we are seeing is many of these non-immigrants, whether they're on H status, H-1B, H-1B1, et cetera, L1, TN, et cetera, have found themselves in limbo, scrambling to figure out a solution on how to maintain their status in the United States. So. Uh, let's talk about some of the options, particularly for employees um, whose status is completely dependent upon the employment and the employer. And if you're the employer and you want to work with your employees, I think here's a golden opportunity for you to understand how the process works and what you can do as well. So, of course, most of us know the big broad theory, right? 60-day grace period. Thank goodness that was imposed. Thank goodness it was actually literally on President Obama's last day in office on January 17, 2017, that it became effective three days before the then new president came into office because definitely we would not have had a pro-employer, pro-employee, pro-immigrant interpretation that would have worked back at that point. But as it stands now, there's a 60-day grace period that never existed before that date. So this is, of course, one of the best and most frequently used options for many employees who have been affected by layoffs and by employers who are interested in find, uh, offering a job to a laid-off employee because now they have the 60-day grace period after the termination of employment to file the new H-1B petition, obtain the LCA in time, et cetera. Now, the 60-day grace period regulation actually allows the employee to be considered in status for the purpose of filing for up to 60 days after the cessation or the termination of the employment. Now, what exactly is cessation of employment? And I'm going to invite TJ to jump in. 
right. So this is thanks, Sheila. So this is this is a question I get all the time. When is the what is cessation of employment? When is my employment considered to have ceased? Um, and, you know, like like lots of things, the definition is uh, of cessation of employment is not in the regulations, um, but it's generally considered to be the last working day. And importantly, USCIS recently further clarified this on their website. This is a website. This is not a regulation. But they recently said that um, the 60-day grace period starts the day after termination of employment, which is typically determined based on the last day for which salary or wage is paid. I know that's a mouthful. Um, I, I usually take the, the, the more conservative approach, and that means you sit on your butt and you work one day and you get paid for that, and the next day you're not working, that's your last day of employment. That's when employment ceased, even if the pay stub came two weeks later. That's the more conservative approach, and that's the approach that, that I've been taking. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have any different approaches or thoughts to that, um, but that's the, that's the yeah. thing to, to, to um, read that. Yeah, yeah I know this, it, this is Kevin. Uh, oh, sorry, Sheila. Yeah, I was just going to uh, say this is Kevin talking, and um, this comes up a lot, and I think the reason why there's a lot of confusion is because many IT workers are being told, particularly by big tech companies and their representation, their legal counsel, that uh, the pay after the layoff notice, even though you're not working and you don't have access or maybe limited access, but you're not actually doing any work, uh, that this pay after the layoff does extend the 60-day grace period. That's the guidance that people are being told. So this creates a big climate of confusion. And it seems like it, you know, I don't think we're seeing a lot of cases where uh, USCIS is saying, you know, sorry, this is severance pay and this is after the grace period. But the concern I think that we have is, you know, having practiced over several administrations, it's interesting that these rules that we have basically were set up in the 90s and early 2000s, and the rules haven't changed a lot, but man, the policies have changed over the Bush and Obama and uh, Trump and Biden administrations. And I think the concern is you know, we represent a lot of IT consulting companies. Um, I would say most more small tech and, you know, medium and big also, but like a lot of small tech companies, small tech companies for 10 years from 2010 to 2020 were hit with this. You know, if you're, if you're benched in between projects, that's a status violation. They called it bench with pay. And it essentially seems like what these, you know, mainly big tech companies are trying to say is, well, bench with pay after a layoff in this situation is status. And that doesn't really seem consistent with what USCIS is uh, contextually. USCIS's approach has historically been to this. And I'm thinking of, okay, maybe it's working today and tomorrow, but I want to make sure my clients understand that this might be one of those things that just works until it doesn't. And if we start, you know, making America great again, again, or, you know, a different, you know, administration that likes to stress test these ambiguities in immigration law to be prepared for that, and it shouldn't come as a uh, surprise at that time. Um, so that's Agreed. just my two cents on, like, thank you. I agree yeah. that, uh, um, Kevin, I agree with you that I think it really is a gray area, and to the extent it's better to be safe than to be sorry, and when they say last day of page, last day of salary, and I think what the, a lot of the larger companies, before they used to give a lump sum severance package, and say, here's your two weeks or two months of pay. Now they're doing it continuing the, every bi-weekly paychecks 
every two weeks within quotes to keep the person in status. And I think the USCIS website, which says, which is typically based on the last day for which a salary or wage is paid, and they say, well, we're paying you a salary or wage for two more months, so we have now extended it from 60 days to four months instead of two months. I think there's definitely a gray area, but you know what? I'm sure the government will come down on it. I'm sure the big law firms and the big tech companies might be willing to sue on this issue if their employees aren't taken back. But Again, to be extra safe, it's better to assume that it's the last day of work. But if you're desperate, what do they say? Desperate people try desperate measures. So whether you're the employer or the employee, understand that the rule is not as clear. So what else is allowed during the 60-day grace period, Kevin? Well, um, you, know, you can't work unless and until the transfer petition is filed, and then you can work on the receipt of the transfer petition if it's filed within the 60 days. Um, the grace period, the 60-day grace period, is available for people in E1, E2, E3, H1B, H1B1, L1, A or B, L1, uh, I'm sorry, O1 or TN status, and all of their dependents. Um, additionally, a question I think I get a lot is, well, my spouse is in H4 and has the EAD. Can they work during this time? And I, I, I advise that, yes, they can work during the 60-day grace period, and as long as the transfer, the H-1 transfer is filed within that window of time, they can continue to work. But if uh, the, the 60 days comes and goes and uh, there's no filing, then the, the H-4 should stop working. They're no longer in status at that time. Um, Got it. And uh, a final thing is, like, well, what is the 60 days? Like, because you know how long it takes to get the receipt notice, right? Like the snail mail receipt notice. And, um, you know, it just needs to be couriered, uh, you know, FedEx or UPS, whatever courier you use, and delivery confirmation on or before the 60th day. Even though you'll get that snail mail receipt notice seven or ten days plus later, the the time that counts is when that uh, USCIS receives it by the courier. And as long as it's filled out correctly and they don't return it, reject it for some, you know, the signature or the check or something, then that would be considered uh, timely for the 60-day grace period. Agreed. But again, we've seen one in so many hundreds of cases where the USCIS loses the package, never claims it never was received, even though we have proof of it. People say, isn't it better to wait for the actual receipt notice? Of course, it's safer to be on the conservative and safe side to wait. But unfortunately, not everybody has the luxury or the time to be able to wait when push comes to shove and you're desperate. It discovers you to say we've done it. And in 99% of the time, it should work. But 1%, we see that often there are, the mailroom will misplace and miraculously, four months later, the package will show up on its own uh, or sometimes never show up five years later as well. Uh, again, one question I'm not sure that we clarified is that the employee will get the 60 days or until the end of the I-94 card date, whichever is shorter of the two. So if you have only 30 days, your H-1 was expiring and the employer hadn't yet filed the extension for you, then guess what? You're out of luck at this point or had filed it and now has decided to revoke or withdraw that filing because they've decided no longer to proceed with helping with that H-1 petition. So the other question that we often get asked is, hey, what kind of cases can we file during that 60-day grace period? Obviously, it's in what we call an extension of status with a change of employer. So during that 60 days, the employer uh, uh, is allowed to file it. 
in the same non-immigrant classification, uh, which is an extension of status. Uh, the employer, uh, the, the employee could interview for jobs uh, to try to find another job within that 60-day time frame, but then if the H-1 petition is not filed, then they can take advantage of the H-1B uh, portability extension and keep working. So the employer needs to file the change of employer with the extension of status within that 60-day time frame. And because of that time limitation, where people can get caught up, the foreign national will actually need to not just find the employer, but find the employment, complete the interview process, a hiring slash interview, and the employer must have the entire case, the LCA and the case filed and received within that 60 days. And while this is quite difficult, it is not impossible, it does require all the parties to move quickly and to be sensitive to the 60-day time frame. And as long as the case, as Kevin just pointed out, has been filed within that 60 days, the foreign national then should be eligible for the extension of the non-immigrant status and can resume work while the case is pending. What about changes of status next, TJ? All right, so, you know, while we do get a, a lot of cases filing an extension of their H-1B status, I'll say we get, we get probably even more individuals who have not been able to find that H-1B job in time. They're still interviewing, things like that, and they just, they just can't make it in time. Um, so they, they look to file uh, to change their status. Um, you know, just like filing the H-1B extension of status, um, assuming they get their case filed within 60 days, um, they would still be good. They'd still be within their grace period. And the good thing about lots of the, the change of status types of cases is that they don't require an employer to be involved whatsoever. Lots of times there's a delay in the employer. You're working with multiple parties, um, so there's a delay there. And lots of these change of status cases can be filed much quicker without relying on an employer. Lots of these change of status cases can also be filed um, by the individual on their own online. You get the receipt notice instantaneously. Um, so that's definitely uh, much faster. Um, so a couple different types of statuses that we see individuals change to. Well, if they have a spouse um, in a different status, um, they may be eligible to file for a dependent status. Um, this is such as an H-4, spouse of an H-1, TD, spouse of a, a TN worker, L-2, spouse of an L-1 worker. Um, we see this fairly frequently, but what we do see a lot is um, changing status, finally change of status to B-2 as pretty much a, a stopgap measure to remain in the United States while the individual continues to look for a job. And I, we'll talk about this recently, but uh, this is a permissible reason to file a B-2. I like to say it's, it's essentially USCIS saying, hey, you give us some money, we'll extend your grace period. Um, so we do, we do see that frequently. A lot, uh, frequently. Um, it's not a permanent solution, right? B2 is a temporary, but it may buy some time to either make further travel arrangements, find that H-1B job, have their kids finish school for that semester, things like that. So with the B2, you can request um, up to six months at a time. Um, with current process times, though, these B2s are taking a really, really, really long time. Um, so, you know, you request six months, and if that six-month period is coming up and you still need to 
look for a job, you still need more time, you can still file a, a B-2 extension even while the first one remains pending. We've seen a lot where people don't realize this, that they can do this, so lo and behold, their B-2 is approved, and it's either approved for a day or it's a, a, they shouldn't do this, but it's backdated. Now, lo and behold, you are out of status, arguably unlawfully present. So make sure if you want to stay that you do file that B-2 extension before the end date requested in, in, on the current one that is pending. Um, and another thing with B-2, you, you really do want to show that you have, um, that you can support yourself financially while in B-2 status. Generally, this is um, showing your bank statements. You know, if you show a three months worth of bank statements, you know, sufficient funds to show you can pay for your housing and, and food, you should be good. Uh, you can also get a sponsor, you know, someone who would attest that they would, you know, support you while you're here with evidence of, of their finances. Don't see that as much. Generally, the, the bank statements are sufficient. Oh, so TJ, this is very helpful. And I know, Kevin, I'm going to have you jump in because, you know, I know there's been some interesting updates from USCIS on people who have filed B2s like this, try to switch back to H1B, uh, allowing for it. And in general, we have, you know, the whole non-immigrant intention. So would you like to just give us a quick overview of some of that interesting stuff? Yeah, thanks, Sheila. Um, so as I'm sure a lot of people know, the, the B-2 visa, that's the visitor visa. That's the non-immigrant intent visa where you have to generally show you have strong ties to your home country. And um, while well, I've been working for years in H-1B status and I have an I-140 approval, I mean, this probably would not fly at the consulate, right? But USCIS did clarify that just having a pending or approved immigrant petition by itself, that should have no impact on your change of status request to B-2. You do need to show that you have uh, maintained residence abroad, that you have an intention to depart after the temporary period of stay ends, but the scrutiny is not going to be at the same level as one would experience at a consulate outside of the United States. So this B-2 option, even though you can't work during this time, it allows you to stay and look for work. Because that's another thing the CIS said is okay, permissible activity. Some people worried, well, hey, isn't this a visitor visa? I'm supposed to be visiting, not interviewing. It's not an interview visa. But USCIS clarified this is a permissible activity. So it's a uh, completely valid um, vehicle to keep you in the U.S. while looking for work when you're competing with thousands of other people who have gone through the same process of you know, mass layoff in one sector. Um, Another interesting development that USCIS said over the summer, I think this is at the AILA conference, the American Immigration Lawyers Association conference, but uh, as TJ said, the B-2 applications are taking, um, I mean, I think like six to nine plus months on average, but US, so, so, and generally if you file a change of status back to H-1 while the B-2 is pending, you, you can't get back to work unless and until the B-2 is first approved to show that you've been maintaining status to be eligible for the change to H-1. But USCIS did indicate that, you know, for those change of statuses filed from pending B-2 to H-1, filed with premium processing, uh, that they would make an effort to process those concurrently so that there would be a much uh, smaller delay in uh, that person getting back to work with the approval. I think we're starting to, to see it's I think that's a new, a new development only in the last couple of months, but we are starting to see some uh, traction there. Uh, and, and finally, uh, you know, for your for the spouses, when you file for the H-1, uh, there's this question, you know, what 
can spouses work? And, you know, for L2, the work is uh, incident to the status. So if somebody's was laid off and uh, is getting back in L1 somehow, uh, the L2 spouse can work. For H1, again, if you have an EAD, I'm sorry, if you have an I-140 approval, your spouse can apply for the I-140, uh, I'm sorry, for the EAD at the time of filing the change of status, um, even if they have an EAD already. So if they have an EAD valid until like 24 or 25 from the previous employer, then there was the layoff, you found a new employer, they're filing the grace, the petition within the grace period, but asking, you know, until 2026, the extension time, go ahead and file the extension of the H or the change, I guess, in that case, back to H4 uh, with the EAD extension also. That way your spouse has the same amount of time as you do. Um, they won't reject it just because they're overlapping. You can definitely apply for um, a, another EAD to keep the same duration of work authorization as your pr principal applicant spouse. Very interesting. A lot of subtle, interesting uh, issues. Uh, just a point of clarification. I know that the USCIS has said when they, uh, if the person applies for the B2, um, they will be, you know, more flexible. But I think by law they may have to approve the B2 first and two seconds later approve the H1B rather than technically concurrently, even though really, in reality it is sort of concurrent, but it really has to be a minute later because of the last action rule where the latest action of the USCIS will determine a person's status. So I think they said in that memo or something, if I recall that you approve the AB2 and then two minutes later you approve the H1 so that the person is actually considered H1B status under the last action rule can continue because technically if it's concurrent, then, oh, well, did this get approved first or this? And then are you in B2 and not H1B, which would defeat the purpose for the employer and the employee doing the H1B. So I think sometimes it's just a little technicality, but just something to be aware of, not a big deal. Hopefully the USCIS is doing their job as they're required and supposed to under their own memos and guidance. Uh, but again, to the extent that as both TJ and Kevin pointed out, it's not in the statute, it's not in the regulations. And the good thing about memos is they're flexible. The bad thing about memos is when there's a change in administration, interpretations can change and come back to bite employers and employees. So getting back to the topic of what should we include uh, in the filing to document the 60-day grace period, right? So you want to document each element of the 60-day grace period to make it as clear as possible to the USCIS to increase the chances of the approval and hopefully not to obtain any type of an RFE, which of course we don't control, but we hope to minimize or eliminate those. And as with any regular ch uh, change of status or extension of status filing, uh, one has to show that the foreign national has maintained the current non-immigrant status leading up to this filing. And to do this within the 60-day grace period is comparatively more straightforward. They should include the foreign national's most recent pay stubs before the layoff occurred, show that the U.S show the USCIS that the foreign national was maintaining status until the start of the 60-day grace period as required by the regulation. The employer or the individual should also try to include documents from, prior, from the prior employer stating the last day of employment. Most employers kind of issue some type of a letter saying, you know, relieving letter or, you know, written documentation that this is your last day of employment. This is what is used to show when the 60-day clock 
should have started and to demonstrate to the USCIS that the beneficiary has maintained eligibility for the change of status request or the extension of status. And finally, the employer uh, or the beneficiary also will need to include the I-94 card as evidence of the maintenance of status to show that it is valid beyond the 60-day grace period or to establish when the grace period ends if it is shorter than the 60 days, as we said earlier. If it's only 30 days, then you have to do all this within the 30 days that your I-94 would show that. And even if your employer agrees to pay you for a couple months on this, I guess they have filed an extension before the layoff, and then that extension is what you're using, but, it's, but you still don't have the I-94 card in your hand as of now, presumably that could be used. So next, let's jump to the issue of what if the person is unable to file within the 60-day window, or they're not eligible because they can't find a job. What are the other options for them to try to approach and get a solution? TJ. All right, so I think this, this last thing is, is the absolute last resort. Now, with, with all these options that USCIS has given, you know, file a change of status to B2, things like that, this really should just be used only if it's, you know, absolute last resort. So this last option is called non-pro-tunk, or NPT. It's pretty much an exception written into the law that allows an individual to file and request the status even if they are not in status at the time of filing. So someone who is on their 61st day after the cessation of their employment and hasn't filed anything, they would be not in status. So they would try and use this provision of the law. So what does this provision of the law say? It says that the, 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 you must show four different things to qualify under this provision. First, that the failure to file while in status um, was due to, failure to file while in status was due to extraordinary circumstances beyond the control of the applicant or the petitioner, and that the delay in filing is commensurate with the circumstances. So if you're at the 65th day of your grace period, um, I can't say whether it's extraordinary circumstance, but the delay in filing was commensurate with the circumstances. Now, don't try and file a year later and say the delay was commensurate because USCIS probably wouldn't agree. Um, the second requirement is that the individual has not otherwise violated their status, so 61st day, you violate your status, but you haven't otherwise violated your status. You didn't do anything else to violate your status other than fail to file within the 60 days. Uh, you remain a bona fide non-immigrant. Now, if you're requesting a, you know, a, you know, a dual intent classification, H-1B, that shouldn't be an issue. Um, and the foreign national is not subject to deportation or removal proceedings. Um, and then NPT is it's a discretionary provision. This means that USCIS may, but is not required to grant the requested action, even if they believe all the elements have been met. Um, you know, in, in the layoff scenario, the argument is that the layoff was outside the control of the applicant or the new employer. COVID times, that, that was a good argument, right? Who expected this global pandemic, so you lost your job? That's clearly an extraordinary circumstance. Nowadays, I'm not really seeing USCIS buy that as an extraordinary circumstance. You never know, it is discretionary, but sometimes you need a little bit more than, than that. Um, and then, but generally, in, in addition to the extraordinary circumstance, you want to try and couple it with sympathetic facts, um, you know, explaining the financial impact of the layoff, or if you have children, um, or if there are any medical issues. What I love to do in my non-protunks is uh, embed a picture of the family into the filing, 
to show this is who you're going to make leave um, if you don't exercise your discretion. Um, so filing an NPT case is the same as just a standard filing. Um, there's no, you know, no different boxes you check, no special form that you use. Instead, you just throw in an attachment um, explaining that the NPT grounds have met, why you met those four prongs that I just went over. Um, and then if it's a 60-day grace period case, you'd also want to include evidence of the most recent pay stops and evidence of the layoff, uh, you know, when the layoff occurred. Hey, I was laid off 63 days ago. Please exercise your discretion to approve this case. Um, in the case of an H-1B, TN, and other employment categories, uh, the petition may be approved, but if the officer doesn't approve the NPT, the status request, um, the, the individual may have to travel abroad, get a visa, um, and then come back in to get back into status. Thank you, TJ. And I guess, so, so I guess, Kevin, it looks like you're ready to focus, jump in and say something. Um, well, I was just going to say, yeah, with the, with the NPT that uh, in, in that last example where TJ said if they approve the petition but then deny the, the status and you have to travel, um, you, you're, you're also unlawfully present starting with the day after that decision. If you're unlawfully present for 180 days or more, this triggers another consequence of being subject to a three-year bar from reentry back into the United States. Really, and you know, as TJ mentioned, filing an NPT means that you uh, blew past the 60 days. And it seems like the NPT would only be a situation where you didn't even realize that you were out of status because, you know, filing the B-2 before the 60 days and then asking, you know, we use NPT arguments in the change of status from the B-2 back to H-1. Please just uh, waive the approval of the B-2 and just approve this because of all those uh, non-proton facts and those things that TJ went through um, is probably a safer way to ask for for that kind of uh, relief. Um, so because it's discretionary and, and kind of uncertain whether it'll work, this is the highest risk type of option. Um, obviously, you want to try to get the job before the 60 days. Obviously, the market makes that challenging, and we think that the B-2 is probably the safest vehicle to help you ultimately get back to work. Um, but this NPT option, I guess another thing that makes a, a reward with this risk is with the NPT, you can work upon the filing. If it's a non-frivolous filing and you file it on day like 75 or 80 and you're technically out of status, but say, hey, it was late, but here are the extraordinary circumstances. Um, I went through a layoff and there's like 100,000 other people like me in my sector. We're experiencing this micro recession and it's not impacting other industries the way it is mine. And, you know, it's me and a bunch of other tech workers all competing with each other to try to find a job. Um, and I happen to find one 10 days late. And here's a picture of my kids. Really? Do you, you're really going to make me travel. Um, it, it can be effective. Uh, but in those situations where it's a change of status, um, that, that it's the number of tongue. So, you know, it's a late filed request from H1 to H4 for whatever reason, um, or H4 to H1, if it was a change of status, even if they approve it, they won't backdate the approval uh, the way the law and the regulation is written. So if it's more than 180 days gap, they still give you the status, but there was more uh, 180 day or more gap, uh, you won't be eligible for adjustment of status. You'd have to travel and come back before being able to apply for a green card. 
And for a lot of people who say, oh, green card, that's not going to be until 2030 something for me. But just remember, it is something that would have to be done in order to completely correct the problem. So NPT just comes with a lot of um, baggage that seems unnecessary in the current climate we're in. When it was peak COVID and they weren't processing the B2s sequentially and quickly, not concurrently, as Sheila pointed out, um, then that that this would be a much more attractive option. But it just doesn't seem like the best approach these days, um, all other things considered. Great. Thank you, Kevin. And I know we are always sensitive to the timing issue, and we try to make these co uh, teleconferences between 30 to 45 minutes. I know we're at 35 minutes. Uh, I promise you, I think between Kevin, DJ, and myself, we will try to wrap up within the next 5, 10 minutes because we actually just want to go over some more highlights, help you as employees, primarily and family members, but also as employers who are trying to file the new case. So, okay, so one issue that we kind of touched upon uh, a couple times but not focused heavily is about travel abroad and then re-entry back into the U.S., right? So if the foreign national was either unable to file within the 60-day grace period or the non-protunk argument either did not work or the person feels like I'm not even going to waste my time making it because I don't have the luxury to to, to, to do that or the employer or the attorney refuses to file the non-protunk, they, they may decide that the safest and the easiest way is for them to travel abroad and then return back into the U.S. to get back into a valid H-1B or other valid non-immigrant status uh, by getting the online I-94 by CDP at the port of entry. So when the petition is filed for what we call consular notification slash consular processing, then the person's status, maintenance of status in the United States is not considered a relevant factor to consider for the USCIS to approve the H-1 petition or the whatever L-1, therefore making the layoff a non-factor with the filing. Now, ideally, obviously, this is not the ideal solution or situation, particularly given the current uh, times, sometimes the visas, as you know, can be done quite quickly, but quite take a much longer time. Uh, visa appointments were very difficult to get till several months ago for there were waiting periods of months, if not years in some cases, to get an appointment. But now we've noticed in the last few months, things have dramatically improved compared to before, particularly in H1. But even in certain countries, uh, like India or other parts of the world where there is a backlog for H1. A neighboring country, for example, either Singapore or uh, other countries closer by, may actually be able to provide uh, a visa appointment that is way faster within anywhere from 15 to 30 working days rather than waiting two, three, four months uh, without a job. Now, also remember that the individual does not have to have an H-1B petition approved to be able to work for the U.S. employer if the person is not physically present in the United States. For example, a citizen of India who's got an Indian passport is legally allowed to work from India or from whichever part of the world the person is a citizen for the U.S. employer as long as the employer and the end client or their policies allow the individual to work from abroad, and if they can do so, 
they can continue to work. Now, there are different tax and financial implications that are outside the scope of this discussion, but basically a lot of employers are saying, go ahead, go abroad. You can continue doing the exact same work from somewhere else, and we allow it for up to 30 days in a year or 60 days in a year because they don't want to have all of these employees working from abroad because of time differential and maybe security concerns, et cetera. So next, next we're going to jump where TJ is going to talk about trying to, I guess, come back using a valid unexpired visa stamped right. in the passport. Right. So sometimes when filing for consular, consular processing, maybe more practical is if an individual already has an unexpired visa in their passport in the same category. So I'm working for employer A, I've got a visa in my passport, an H-1B visa in my passport valid until the end of 2024. And I get a new approval for company B. The approval though is for consular processing. So upon the approval, I can leave the country and I don't need to apply for a visa. Instead, I just return with my visa for company A that remains valid and my approval notice for company B. Um, and then I can be admitted in H-1B status. A couple things to, to keep in mind here. As a port of entry, 100% make sure to present the approval notice for company B, triple check the I-94 card online to make sure you're given an I-94 card to match the approval, uh, company B's approval. Lots of times we see that CBP inadvertently or erroneously shortens it to the date of the visa. So that could be an issue. So definitely double check that. Another thing that this may not be an option even with a valid visa, if you tried that NPT argument that Kevin was talking about before and USCIS made a finding that you violated your status. So if you've violated your status and there's a finding that you violated your status or you've overstayed, your visa is automatically canceled. There's nothing going to be, there's nothing gonna be in your visa that says it's canceled, but your visa is automatically canceled. So trying to use that visa could come with some significant problems when you try to enter the United States. Um, and then this doesn't work for all visa categories. So those are just some things to keep in mind, but we do see it a lot in the H-1B context. It's a great option to use if you have that valid visa and you get a new approval. Thank you, TJ. What about the quick touch, the, uh, touch upon the I-140-based EAD compelling circumstances, EAD, Captain? Yeah, so no discussion about the 60-day grace period would be complete without topping it off with the EAD for compelling circumstances. In fact, that's where a lot of people like to go at the beginning, thinking that it's the best option. Um, it's probably not a good option. It's probably only a good option generally for people who've just for some reason or another run out of L1 or H1, you know, their work off uh, visa time. But we'll go through it just to make sure everybody knows about this tool in the toolbox. Uh, so to qualify, the beneficiary has to have an approved I-140 and be in a valid H-1, uh, E-3, H-1B-1, O-1, or L-1 uh, status. If the person is laid off, that means they would need to apply for the EAD before the end of their grace period to have a chance at uh, getting it. The application needs to contain evidence that there are compelling, quote, compelling circumstances that justify an independent grant of employment authorization. Uh, the rule doesn't define what compelling circumstances are, but it does list, some, list several circumstances like illness, serious illness or disability, significant disruption to the employer, substantial harm to the applicant, and the this is 
recently become more, although it's been around for a little while, this recently has become more of an attractive option for folks because the uh, preamble to the regulation notes that unemployment by itself will not be considered a compelling circumstance, but in the case of a layoff, the applicant can show that unemployment would cause substantial harm. So it's not the unemployment itself, it's what is the harm that flows from that, and that seems to kind of like lower the, the threshold a little bit for qualification, and this has become kind of a attractive option for people. But I think these cases are taking a long time to process, and like uh, Sheila, right, isn't there some other drawbacks to, to going with this option? Yeah, so one of the absolute good points, Kevin, one of the absolute uh, drawbacks that exists is the applicant actually is not considered to be maintaining a valid non-immigrant status merely because they have the EAD card. Now they're, they're basically not any longer on H-1B status because they're using the compelling circumstances EAD. So this could be a potential problem if they find an employer that's willing to file an H-1, put, bring them back into H-1 status most likely the person would typically be required to travel abroad, uh, come back, get a new visa, return invalid status, or uh, uh, potentially it would impact the ability to file the adjustment of status of 485 down the road for the green card, which when you have to wait 5, 10, 15, 20 years may think forever in the future, but when that forever date lands up on your doorstep, you realize, oh my God, now I need to meet and satisfy this test as well. Um, but let's get back to the EAD. Uh, how long is it valid for, TJ? So if, if it's approved, the EAD would be issued for up to a year, um, and then it can only be extended if the individual's priority date is less than one year from the cutoff date listed in the visa bulletin. Got it. Okay. And what about dependent EADs? Uh, yeah, dependents, dependents can also qualify for the EAD if the principal applicant qualifies for it, too. So they, they, they can apply for it and get it as well. Perfect. I know we are kind of running short on time, but I really hope that whether you're an employee, a family member, the employer, you really have gotten a flavor of how and what you can do as an employer to help your employees as employees to be proactive in taking care of your own status for yourself and your dependents. Um, in, in, and that was the whole purpose of we at the Murthy Law Firm doing this session because of what we're seeing out there in the world, in the marketplace, with the economy, and what have you. Uh, thank you again for joining us for today's teleconference. On behalf of Kevin Andrews, TJ, myself, Sheila Murthy, and all of us at the Murthy Law Firm, we want to thank you for joining us. We want to wish you a happy fall, and we really hope that things pick up and we have fewer layoffs so we will not need to rely on such options and opportunities that we can actually get back to doing the H1s and the green cards and all of the other usual problems that we deal with in the world of immigration. So thank you so much for joining us. Hope you all had a wonderful summer and you're ready to get back to fall. Have a great afternoon and a good rest of the week. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is a free service. The content is the protected, copyrighted property of the Murthy Law Firm. Unauthorized recording or dissemination of these materials without prior permission is prohibited by law. Learn about our firm, how to engage our services and more at www.murthy.com.